0: Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Title of this interview is called "How to Go from the Fear of Dying to the Joy of Living." It's an interview with Dr. Dean Ornish. Many people believe they'd be happier if they could just have more of something—more money, more beauty, more success. But according to Dr. Ornish, prominent doctor and author of *The Spectrum*, those kinds of thoughts usually make us more stressed and unhappy. To the point, even if we got the more we wanted, we wouldn't be able to enjoy it. Fortunately, though, Dr. Dr. Ornish says, stress isn't something that happens to us, it's how we react to what's happening to us. And there are many ways to lengthen our fuses and find the love, connection and community that studies show are key factors to good health and happiness. And in this audio, you'll hear many of those ways. You'll also learn how to personalize a way of eating and living that's right for you. You'll learn the optimum foods for good health. What foods help us grow more neurons and which ones help us feel better. You'll learn all about processed foods. Are they really as bad as the rap they're given? You'll learn simple ways to reduce your stress in as little as a minute a day. You'll learn why you might want to think twice before getting bypass surgery or stents to prevent heart attack and what you can do instead and much, much more. According to Dr. Dean Ornish, health isn't something we gain. It's something we already have until we disservice it. A few simple lifestyle choices can make a huge difference like what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and what kind of love is in our life. And in this audio, you'll hear all about to improve the quality of your life and get back to the joy of living now let's get going
1: Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best health-related interviews. My dad used to tell me that making money is great, but being able to spend it in a healthy and vibrant manner makes your financial success that much sweeter. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health issues, send them over to Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Today, we're talking with Dr. Dean Ornish, author of The Spectrum and many other best selling books, named by Life magazine as one of the 50 most influential members of his generation. Dr. Dean Ornish has also served on the Senate Committee for Integrative Medicine and is the founder and president of the nonprofit Preventative Medicine Research Institute in Sausalito, California. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Ornish. You had a wonderful quote in Spectrum. You said, a quote by Sophocles, one word that frees us all from the weight and pain in life, and that word is love.
2: Yes. <laughs> well, we're often using these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art measures to prove the power of these very low-tech and low-cost and often ancient observations like Sophocles made that study after study has shown that people who don't feel a sense of love and connection community are many times more likely to get sick and die prematurely than those who have that, in part because you're more likely to abuse yourself, you're more likely to smoke and overeat and drink too much and work too hard and so on when you don't feel that sense of love and connection community. But even through mechanisms we don't fully understand, when people have a sense of love and connection to the community, they're much more likely to avoid getting sick and dying prematurely.
1: With reversing disease, what are the most important things that people can do to regain their health? It's a
2: different conception than I was taught in medical school that health is not something you gain. Health is something you have already until you disturb it in most cases. That our bodies have a remarkable capacity to begin healing themselves and much more quickly than we had once realized if we simply stop doing what's causing the problem in the first place. I studied yoga for many years with a spiritual teacher named Swami Satchidananda. People say, what are you a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an undo." And that's really a shorthand way of saying that. What we try to do is to identify what's causing the problem and then help people to change that. Usually when I lecture, I often show a cartoon of doctors busily mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing but nobody's turning off the faucet and when we turn off the faucet then we allow healing to occur on a spiritual level people think that happiness is something that you get if only I had more this or that or less of this or that then I'd be happy you know more money more power more beauty more accomplishments whatever it happens to be and the more they believe that generally the more stressed and the more unhappy they feel until they get it they feel stressed if somebody else gets it and they don't they feel even worse and even if they get it it's very seductive because it makes you think that your happiness and well-being came from getting this thing that you thought you needed, but it's never enough. It's like, well, now what? One patient said, I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed. I'm already looking over the next one. Or so what? Big deal. It doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning and happiness. Even the yoga and meditation techniques that we include in the back of the spectrum, there's a DVD that my wife, Anne, has created. She's, I think, the best yoga teacher in the country right now. I'm obviously a little bit biased, but even before we had that kind of relationship, I was saying that about her. And meditation and yoga don't bring you a sense of peace and well-being. What they help you do is to stop disturbing, at least temporarily, what's there all the time. And that may sound like a semantic distinction, but it's a very powerful, profound one. Because if we think that happiness is something that we have to get or health is something we have to get, then it's always like, what am I lacking and how can I get it? But if we say, well, wait a minute, that's our nature to be happy until we disturb it. That's a very empowering realization, not to blame, but to empower, to say, oh, if it's me, I can do something about that. I can react in different ways. I may be looking in the wrong places. And so seen from this perspective, the suffering that many people are experiencing in the world without in any way trying to minimize it can be a very powerful wake-up call to help us re-examine what really matters and what may not matter as much as we once thought. It's so easy to be glib and say to somebody who's suffering, oh, you know, suck it up, be happy, and then the proper response is a nice Hawaiian punch to me. But without in any way trying to minimize anyone's suffering, I know from my own experience, there are much greater degrees of freedom than I had once realized about how I interact with the world. That stress is not just what happens to you, it's how you react to what's happening to you. In the study of telomeres that I mentioned earlier, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who discovered telomerase, will probably win a Nobel Prize for her discovery. And we collaborated on this study showing that lifestyle changes increase telomerase and thus telomere length, had done an earlier study four years ago with Alyssa Apple, where she found that when she looked at women who were under chronic emotional stress because they were taking care of kids with birth defects or autism, you know, some really awful things, that the more the women felt stressed and the longer they reported feeling stress, the lower their telomerase and the shorter their telomeres, meaning they would live a shorter lifespan and all other things being equal. But it wasn't an objective measure of stress. It was the women's perception of it that really determined whether or not it affected them. And it wasn't necessarily a function of how bad somebody else might think their circumstances were. You know, to some degree, you know, if you're in a concentration camp, that's going to be a lot more stressful than having lunch at Starbucks. But even in a concentration camp, Viktor Frankl wrote in a book called Man's Search for Meaning that not everybody survived and that the people who survived generally reacted to these dire circumstances in ways where they found a sense of purpose and meaning that enabled them to cope with it. And so what I'm learning in my own life in much less dire circumstances is that I have a much greater degree of choice than I had once realized, that I don't necessarily have to react in the same ways. One of the nice things about practicing yoga and meditation on a regular basis is that even without having to think about it, we react in different ways. People say things like, you know, I used to have a short fuse and I'd explode easily and now my fuse is longer. In other words, things are the same. I'm in the same job, the same family, the same environment, but I'm not reacting in the same way. And it's not like people have to tell themselves not to react. Their fuse is longer. And everybody's experienced the opposite. You know, when you're really tired and raggedy and run down, the day-to-day small aggravations can often be enormously stressful. So we have a lot more choice in this than we had once realized. But even on an intellectual, cognitive level, we have a lot more choice. My wife and I have been teaching our 8-year-old son, Lucas, about this. You know, to say, you know, just because something happens to you doesn't mean it necessarily needs to get all upset about it or stressed out or cry or whatever it happens to be. We can honor and validate that experience, but to say, you know, that's a legitimate experience but it's not a fun experience and we have more choice than we realize and we can make something positive out of it and it's a lot more enjoyable to be able to react in those kinds of ways somebody might be laid off in this economy and that might be an awful thing and it is an awful thing and then without in any way trying to say hey what a great thing is you got laid off or hey what a great thing you got cancer to say okay well we don't look for suffering but there it is now what do we do with it and to say, okay, well, maybe I'm being guided by an unseen hand is one way to contextualize it. or Maybe there's another way to look at this. Maybe there's an opportunity to do what I really wanted to do in my life and I was afraid to quit my job and now I have an opportunity to really do what my real passion is. And, you know, those kinds of things without in any way trying to minimize or make wrong or change someone else's experience to say, look, you know, as my teacher used to tell me, you know, if you want to keep banging your head against the wall, keep doing it. Don't blame the wall. But they're more healthy and they're more joyful ways of living in the world than the ones that may have become habitual. Well, if you told me 30 years ago when I was depressed and suicidal that this is what I'd be doing now, I would have thought you were nuts. And maybe part of the mystery of life is that we don't necessarily know. It may be a delusion, but it's a very functional delusion and that everything that's happening to me is for the best. It's nice to be able to see it in real time. It's always easier to see it in retrospect. But, you know, if I can see it as it's happening or at least remind myself of that, it gives me more degrees of freedom in how I interact with things rather than woe is me, which doesn't really take me anywhere Except to a really unhappy place. Stress affects all of our systems. When you're depressed, your immune system is depressed. Your heart is more likely to get clogged up. It's more likely to beat irregularly. It, it lowers the threshold for sudden cardiac death. In virtually every way we can measure, stress, again, defining it as this chronic, destructive way of relating to the world, you know, that stress. It's like tuning a violin, you know, you need a certain amount of tension on the string to play music. If it's too much, then the string breaks. If it's not enough, then not much happens. So these techniques of stretching and breathing and meditation and yoga, as well as the more spiritual approaches of altruism and compassion and love and forgiveness, can help free us from a lot of the stress and suffering so that we can often be in the same job, as I mentioned earlier, but react in very different ways, and the paradox is we can often accomplish even more without getting as stressed in the process. There's an old Zen proverb, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Your actions may remain the same, but the intentionality behind it is very different.
1: Also, at the Senate hearings, you talked a lot about food and how that affects health. Can you talk a little bit about that? For more interviews like this, go to Michael Senoffs michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com.
2: There were four of us that testified before the Senate Committee on Health Reform, and President Obama has made health reform one of his priorities, which I'm really thrilled about. I've been consulting with members of his health reform team for the last seven or eight months, and Senator Harkin and Senator Mikulski are two of the senators that have been put in charge of the most important parts of health reform. Senator Harkin has been put in charge of health reform with respect to wellness and prevention and public health, and Senator Mikulski on some of the payment issues. And it's wonderful because they totally get it. And so usually when I've testified before the Senator of the House, you know, you get five minutes and then they ask a couple questions and that's it. And we got into a dialogue that went on for several hours, which is available on the web now. And part of what I talked about was the importance that these lifestyle choices that we make, including what we eat, play an important role. And since Senator Harkin is also the head of the Agriculture Committee, we talked about trying to change some of of the perverse incentives where it becomes cheaper to eat junk food than eat healthy food. You know, the diet that we found that can reverse all these illnesses that we talked about earlier that form the healthiest end of the spectrum in my new book called The Spectrum are predominantly fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and soy products. Until recently, those have been the cheapest way to eat. It's like a third world diet. And yet it actually becomes cheaper in our country to eat junk food because of the agricultural subsidies and the perverse incentives that make it easier to eat a lot of fat and salt and sugar than to eat fruits and vegetables. And one of the things that Senator Harkin said that I love is that he was able to put a billion dollars, a billion with a B, in the farm bill, on the agriculture bill, to provide fruits and vegetables for kids in schools, many of whom had never tasted what a fresh orange is like, even though that may be hard for many people to believe. And they love it. They were concerned, oh, they wouldn't eat it or there'd be so much waste or trash or they'd be throwing it. And they just loved it. And then, you know, when you eat a healthy meal in school, it increases your academic performance. It reduces your absenteeism from getting sick. It shows you what good foods they really taste good. There are a lot of these false choices, you know, is it fun for me or is it good for me to say, wait, it can be both. And kids get their taste preferences when they're young. So if they find that these foods taste good, instead of trying to scare them into change or manipulate them into change, just say, you know, what's sustainable is pleasure and joy and freedom and fun. And by giving people in schools this experience, it not only transforms them, but then they go home and it helps transform their families as well.
1: And how does Senator Harkin walk that tightrope? Well, now that he's the
2: chair of the committee and now that he's been put in charge of health reform with respect to prevention and wellness and public health on the Senate side, he's got the power to actually implement things that he's been talking about doing for more than a decade and more power to him. He's a real visionary and he and Senator McCullough are doing extraordinary work. And I was just really pleased that he's in. Of position now that he can actually make these things happen.
1: Dr. Oz mentioned also that in Costa Rica, you have a four times better chance of living to 100 than if you live in the U.S. So why is that?
2: Well, because we're learning that just putting a lot of money into something doesn't necessarily buy health. We're number one in the world in the amount of money we spend on health care, which Senator Harkin actually calls sick care, which is true, and disease care. Not really healthcare. And as a result, even though we're number one in how much we spend, we're like 37th or so in what they really show. And in my testimony, I use the example of angioplasties and bypass surgery. How do we treat heart disease? That's normally how we do it. If we say, let's take an evidence based approach, The evidence shows that from randomized trials, not in New Age Journal, but the New England Journal of Medicine and Journal of the American Medical Association and other first-tier peer-reviewed science journals, the randomized trials show that unless you're in the middle of having a heart attack, which 95% of people who get angioplasties and stents are not, that they don't prolong your life. They don't even prevent heart attacks. And the same has been true for bypass surgery. And we spent $60 billion last year on angioplasty, $44 billion on bypass surgery. That's over $100 billion for approaches that are dangerous, invasive, expensive, and largely ineffective. They do reduce angina, chest pain, but we found we can reduce angina by over 90% in just a few weeks simply by changing lifestyle, more than you can get with surgery. And so the incentives are perverse there as well. Senator Harkin said they'll pay the 10000 to amputate your diabetic foot but not a few hundred dollars to teach you how to eat better and to take care of your foot to prevent that from happening in the first place. So if we have 45 million Americans who don't have health insurance, which is rapidly rising as people lose their jobs and with their insurance that goes along with it, there's an opportunity to say, if we really want to make healthcare available to everyone, If we just put them in the system and do bypasses and angioplasties and so on, then costs are going to go up exponentially at a time when we can't afford it. So we have to ration or raise taxes or let the deficit go up. None of them are very good. But if we can teach people these simple approaches that we've now trained over 50 hospitals in how to do, and we finally, after 14 years, got Medicare to pay for it, we can now change the model, the paradigm, to make it truly health care rather than just disease care.
1: And Dr. Ornish, for our listeners, what are those simple procedures?
2: Well, they're the ones that I describe in my new book, The Spectrum. They're what we eat, how we respond to stress, whether or not we smoke, how much exercise we get, and the quality of love and intimacy in our lives. And so what I've done in my new book is I've categorized foods from the most healthful to the least healthful along the spectrum, hence its name, because part of what we've learned is what really enables people to make sustainable choices is a sense of feeling free and in control. And the whole concept of a diet is based on feeling restricted and what you can't have and what you must do. And that's not sustainable. Willpower and patient compliance are just creepy words to me because even more than being healthy, most people want to feel free and in control. And as soon as somebody says, eat this and don't eat that and do this and don't do that, you know, you want to do the opposite. It goes back to uh, don't eat- the apple and that didn't work and that was God talking. So what we do is to say, look, there are no good foods or bad foods, but some foods are clearly healthier for you than others. And if you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you cheated or you're a bad person or all these moralistic terms that people like to use. It just means eat healthier the next because what matters most is your overall way of eating and living. And so in fact, studies have shown that people who overall eat the healthiest are the ones that allow themselves some indulgences because life is to be enjoyed. And so if you're trying to reverse a chronic disease like reverse heart disease, that's the pound of cure. You wanna move as close to the healthy end of the spectrum as you can because we found in all of our studies, the more people changed, the better they got. heart disease or diabetes or high blood pressure or prostate or breast cancer or whatever, the more you change, the better you get. But how much you change and how quickly is really a function of what you're trying to accomplish. So if you're trying to reverse a serious illness, you might want to eat mostly on the healthiest end of the spectrum. If you're just trying to lose a few pounds or get your cholesterol down, find out where you are in the spectrum and then move a little overall in the healthier direction. If that's enough to accomplish your goals, to lose the weight or get your cholesterol down or your blood pressure, that's great. If not, then go further. And so it's possible to personalize and customize a way of eating and living that's just right for you based on your own needs and preferences.
1: What do you do for your own health? I
2: do the things I'd suggest other people to do, all the things we've been talking about. I eat mostly healthy food. I indulge myself sometimes, like I encourage other people to do. I work out. I spend as much time with my wife and my son as I can. I do at least a little meditation and yoga every day. Part of what we've learned is that the consistency is even more important than the duration. Sometimes I don't have time to do an hour a day. So I'll say, well, do I have a minute? You know, because I have to admit I don't have a minute to meditate. Then I have to say my life is so out of balance, something's really wrong here. So I'll usually find the time to do the minute. And if I do the minute, chances are I'll do more than that anyway, because it's getting started. It's always a challenge. But even a minute has value, because if you meditate for a minute, it subconsciously carries through the rest of the day. It's a little like if you hear a song on the radio, and then you find yourself humming it later. It's the consistency that's so important. And that's what we recommend.
1: For more interviews with the world's top health and medical experts, go to Michael Senoffs com. For our listeners out there, you know, I know a lot of them don't understand what healthy food is. They can pick up a copy of your book, The Spectrum, and check that out. But can you kind of just go over what are the optimum foods for health?
2: Not only just what you exclude from your diet that's harmful, but also what you include that's beneficial. There are hundreds of thousands of beneficial substances in certain foods that have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, anti-aging properties. But more importantly, some of these foods, I mean, blueberries, for example, and even chocolate and tea have substances that actually make you grow new brain neurons. You can actually grow some new brain neurons in a few months that your brain gets measurably bigger. That was thought impossible just a few years ago. And it's parts of your brain that you want to get bigger, your hippocampus that controls memory, your frontal cortex that processes information and so on. And so when people realize that the fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and soy products are rich in these substances that really are protective and make us feel good and improve the quality of our lives, then it becomes a different context for making these choices, from fear of dying to joy of living, which is really what makes it sustainable. It comes out of your own experience, not because some book or doctor told you, but because, oh, so what we do is to help people connect the dots between what they do and how they feel. When I do this, when I eat this way, when I live this way, I feel good. When I do this, I feel bad. Maybe I'll do more of this and less of that. And then it makes it more sustainable because there's no point in giving up something that you enjoy unless you get something back that's better and quickly. And because these mechanisms are so dynamic, when you follow the kinds of recommendations that I talk about in this spectrum, your brain gets more blood, you think more clearly, you have more energy, you grow more brain cells as we talked about a moment ago. Your skin gets more blood so you don't age as quickly. You know, you don't wrinkle. You have more of a healthy glow. Your sexual organs get more blood flow in the same way that Viagra works. And for many people, these are choices worth making. You know, fear of dying is not a good motivator because we all know we're going to die. It's just a question of when. And it's too scary to think that something bad might happen to you. So people tend not to think about those things. So they don't. But joy of living is a very powerful motivator. And when people make these changes, I mean, one of the most effective anti-smoking ads was Christy Turlington, the supermodel, has a wonderful website called smokingisugly.com because her father died of lung cancer. And she got so tired of people looking like, you know, the glamorous model smoking like it's sexy and cool and beautiful. Nicotine causes your arteries to constrict, which is why in your heart it can cause a heart attack because it reduces blood to your heart, or in your brain it can cause a stroke. But in your skin it makes your little arteries in your face constrict, which cause you to wrinkle faster and get that kind of gray pallor. And also it constricts the arteries to your sexual organs. So half of guys who smoke are impotent. So instead of making it sexy and beautiful, it really makes you ugly and impotent. How fun is that? And so by helping people really connect the dots between what they do and how they look and how they feel, we find that these are ways of creating sustainable changes in lifestyle that people can really stick with as opposed to a diet you get on and then you get off. And you say to people, why do you smoke or overeat or drink too much or work too hard or abuse yourself? These behaviors seem so maladaptive to me. And they'd say, Dean, you don't get it. These are very adaptive because they help us get through the day. They say, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Or they use food to fill the void or alcohol to numb the pain or they work too hard or watch too much TV or too many video games. There are lots of ways of numbing or killing or distracting ourselves from pain or literally or figuratively bypassing it. But as we talked about at the beginning of this interview the pain is there for a reason. It's to say, hey, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. And then when we can use that experience of suffering as a doorway for transforming our lives, as Rachel Remen says, our wounds are our windows, our opportunities to really transform. Then people sometimes look back on the suffering as a blessing in disguise because it got their attention that enabled them to make these changes that have made their lives so much more joyful and meaningful.
1: I know Dr. Hyman mentioned that processed foods have some of the same additive properties as heroin and Cocaine.
2: Well, you know, they're addictive to the extent that they meet an unmet need. And the real unmet need in our culture is the sense for connection and community. It's a basic human need that so often goes unfulfilled. And if you can meet an unmet need in business, you can create a multi-billion dollar business, even if you don't do it all that well. I mean, look at the chat rooms in AOL when they first started, created a multi-billion dollar business, which the whole Web 2.0 is now based on. You know, Facebook and MySpace and so on. I mean, a lot of people have got a thousand Facebook friends. You know, they're not your most intimate friends, but even just that sense of community can create a multi-billion dollar business. It's, again, just these short little ways to say, hey, I want to feel connected to someone else. Starbucks, you know, it's like, come on in, hang out here. We've got high-speed Internet access and soft couches and nice lighting and good things to eat and drink, you know. So that's really the unmet human need. And so if we can approach that more intentionally and say, okay, it's addictive to the sense that, yeah, if I'm going to use food to fill that void, one person said, you know, fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain. So instead of saying, okay, let's get rid of all the fat in our diet to say, how can we address the the underlying issue more directly? How can we turn off the faucet around the sink that's overflowing? How can we use these approaches to quiet down our mind and body? To experience more of a sense of peace and joy? How can we learn to have more compassion and love and altruism in our life as a way of spending time with the people that matter to us? And part of the value of science, as I mentioned earlier, is to raise the awareness of what really matters in our lives. And as we understand how much these things matter, then we begin to realize that the time that we spend with our friends and families isn't just the luxury that we do after we've done all the important stuff, the important stuff and so we can then say oh gosh you know being home in time for dinner and spending it with my friends and family isn't just something that I do when I've got time for it I need to make time for it it's as important as anything else that I'm doing and perhaps even more so and then when we work on that level then we find that people are much more likely to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life enhancing than ones in self-destructive if we only focus on the behavior it doesn't work that well if we just give people information that's important but not usually sufficient if it were nobody would smoke it's on every pack of cigarettes that we have to work at a deeper level And then we can help people use the experience of their suffering In whatever form it comes As a doorway for transforming their lives Rather than just as some kind of thing to be endured Does that make sense?
1: It does I want to get back to a little bit about Just the issues of food and our culture And I know one of the things that Dr. Wheels said Was if he has to sum up health advice in one line He said that the single most important thing That one can do for good health Is to stop eating refined, processed, and manufactured foods Now do you agree with this?
2: Well I don't really totally agree with with that because, you know, some foods that are manufactured are quite good for you. And I've been consulting with some of the big food companies to get them to make healthier foods. And so if when you go into McDonald's, for example, and you see this fruit and walnut salad, which is fruit, it's apple slices, fresh apples, you know, mandarin oranges, walnuts, and several different kinds of lettuce and grapes, you know, that's a good thing. For many people, it's an alternative to eating foods that are a lot less healthy for you. And so one of the reasons that I did that was I learned that in a lot of lower socioeconomic areas in parts of the city, they don't Have grocery stores there, but they have McDonald's. And so I figured, okay, well, if we can put some healthier foods there, maybe that's a good thing. And McDonald's is now the biggest purchaser of apples in the world because of that one salad. I mean, that's the scale that they work on. But there's a lot of junk food out there, too, no doubt. And so, yes, ideally, if we can all eat locally grown, sustainable, organic produce, clearly that's the best way to eat. But I wouldn't say that all processed foods are bad for you. A lot of them are, but some of them aren't. And so it really becomes a question of how can we find the right balance between what's optimal and what's going to be practical for people.
1: Well, thanks so much, Dr. Ornish, for talking with us today. That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.